Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Into yeah, that's probably an ad. The Ad Week podcast that takes a look at marketing, advertising, pop culture, and tech. Because in the end, everything is an ad. Hello, I am Shannon Miller, the creative and inclusion editor here at Ad Week. Um, now, typically to my right is David Briner, my co-captain. However, he is taking a much-deserved vacation. So it is just me today joined by two very great friends. Um, I am excited to have my colleague join me, uh, senior editor T.L. Stanley, but we all just call her Terry. Terry, this is the first time that we've been on the show together, I think. I know. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. And also just very odd. You would think because we talk every day <laughs> that we've talked to this capacity before, but we have not. I know. And I'm thrilled that you are co-hosting this podcast now because I like to pop in regularly, frequently. So I'm very happy to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's this has been very fun so far. So I am excited for this to be the first of what will surely be many um, on air chats. And um, joining us today, we have a very special guest um, all the way in the UK. We have the chief creative officer at t- agency Taylor Herring, Peter Mount Stevens. Hi, Peter. Hi, um, thanks for having me. Delighted to join. Thank you for joining us for, um, for an episode that should be interesting to say the least. This has been a pretty busy week at Ad Week. We just wrapped up um, Women Trailblazers, um, which was another um, fantastic event. Um, if you have not checked out that issue with cover star Tracy Ellis Ross, um, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, it was just a very inspiring week. Now, on the editorial side, it's been weird. <laughs> it's been a little bit odd, to say the least. Um, it's definitely shown a very fun and interesting side of advertising. Um, today, we are going to talk about some of the very memorable stunts that have taken place. Um, it's definitely an interesting summer. Um, we, especially coming out of, well, I don't want to say coming out of a pandemic. We are definitely nowhere near out of a pandemic, but we are much closer to sort of joining the fruits of being outside than we were last summer. And brands are definitely taking advantage of that. Um, and I have Terry here specifically because if there is one person on staff that has their finger on the very weird pulse (laughs) of advertising. It's Terry. If there's going to be someone that has a um, (laughs) odd um, campaign to drop in the slack, it is most definitely Terry T.L. Stanley. So 
She's going to be our Ad Week expert for today on some of the stunts that have kind of floated um, to (laughs) the top of our newsroom over the past week. Uh, Terry, so what has the past, actually it's probably been a little bit more than a week, what has the past like one or two weeks been like in terms of the stunts that have, we've seen? Um, I think, first of all, people understand that I have a twisted sense of humor. So they tend to bring me those kinds of stories. You know, if they follow me over time, they know what kind of quirkiness I like mm-hmm. and that, that might get my attention. So I I do tend to get a lot of weird campaigns. <laughs> um and I think we've seen and we have reported on the um, the real sort of pent up demand on the uh, brand and ad agency side to really get back out there, be visible, spend money. Um, and I think maybe the stunts are kind of the next phase of that. So first they came back with their sort of standard campaigns. Many of them talked about um, they gave advice. They talked about talk to consumers about here's how you get back out there. And some of them are really cheeky and funny and lots of survival tips and, uh, you know, how to dress in public again and stuff like that. We saw lots of brands doing that. And now I think this is just kind of the next phase, maybe an optimistic um, phase of like, let's do fun, splashy, big things again. And uh, there have been a lot of them over the last few weeks. It was that that first week, I think I, I said to Shannon and the rest of my team, oh, it's going to be stunt week, which turned into stunt two weeks. And so, yeah, I just keep covering stunt after stunt after stunt. And they are clickbait for us. So I guess that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> they are very eye-catching. They are buzzworthy. They are share-worthy. So I think that's the whole point. We can certainly, um, with Peter, I'm sure you'll know more on the the level of ROI and impact and engagement and brand building if if they work. Mm -hmm. But certainly initially, they work for us because they drive traffic. They're fun stories to do. And um, they definitely get the brand some attention. Yeah, absolutely. I think if they're dri- if they're driving positive brand sentiment and people are sharing it, then then you know they're working for sure. And I I totally agree. I think that that the whole past eighteen months, brands have been pretty muted because they're trying to judge the the mood um, of the nation, if if you like. And I think now we're gradually coming out of it. I, I, I think you're right. I think we're seeing a lot more a lot more theatre, a lot more brand entertainment. And I think generally that that takes the form of stunts because um, it's a stunt is kind of just dipping the toe in the water, if you like, as opposed to going all out. And it's pretty difficult at the moment for brands to do anything on an experiential level because we're not quite out of the woods yet. So we're seeing quite a lot of the sort of stunts you've written about. So um, you were, we were talking a little bit before we hopped on air, Peter, um, about um, sort of the history or sort of like the non-existent, if you will, history of stunts and how it's kind of hard to trace the beginning of that can you talk a little bit more about that sure well yeah i mean we we presented a keynote speech um at can lion a few years back now on the art of the publicity stunt and we were trying to trace the origins of where stunts originally came from and they their origins are really in sort of campfire stories of old 
um, you know, these great narratives that people would tell around the campfire, the stories would get wilder and wilder and people would pass them on. And, you know, by the time the story ended up 100 miles away, it morphed into a much bigger story and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I think we we touched upon many things in that, but from gladiatorial Rome, where the gladiator spectacles were initially put on as a PR stunt to keep the people in power and keep the people entertained. And those gladiator fights just got more and more elaborate with, you know, live animals, big ships and arenas and what have you. Um, and just going all the way through history up to, you know, P.T. Barnum, um, where, you know, with his circus, he was the, the I would say, the originator of the modern PR stunt. Um, you know, he had his circus, um, we're very familiar with the character, but his most famous stunt um, uh, was uh, a whole herd of elephants uh, across the Brooklyn Bridge, I think back in the, the late 1800s, which garnered worldwide news at the time and ensured that, you know, his uh, theatre uh, circus performances were sold out. And at the same time, you had people like Houdini that were putting themselves in barrels and throwing themselves over Niagara Falls, all of that stuff has kind of laddered up to what we consider to be the modern day PR stunt. You know, like the, the sort of observing the stunts over the past just two weeks have really made me change my language when it comes to um, stunts in particular. Because I used to, in my mind, I used to classify stunts as good and bad. Um, but really the language that works in terms of our industry is effective. What's an effective stunt? Because um, there have been a lot of bad stunts out there that were like, oh, they shouldn't have done this, but they did it and they got everyone talking about it. Um, so at the, end, at the end of the day, that's kind of the point of it, yeah? Uh, it's So it's interesting to look at stunts in particular because I think just that language and that mindset differs um, from sort of the ones that we apply to everyday ads. And some of those I've had to kind of train my thought process just this past week on a few, many of which Terry covered. Big surprise there. So what was the, Terry, what was the big trend for the past week and a half, you'd say? Um, well, one point I think that always kind of sticks with me about these stunts is that the point is to be much at, much bigger than the stunt itself. It's it's much bigger than a bathing suit with soup written across it. It's um, because as as Katie Lundstrom wrote about yesterday or the day before. Busy Hard Seltzer did their own line of swimwear scented for your favorite tropical drink. Um, they made 200 of those. 200. Yeah. So, they, right, the numbers can be very, very small. Sometimes we can't even get the numbers. They won't even tell us the numbers. They made 2,500 pints of mac and cheese ice cream. So the numbers are always very small, sometimes undisclosed to us, even when we ask. Um, so it, it appears to be more of a rush than it actually is. Like, oh, that all that merch sold out in five minutes. Well, if you only had 200 suits, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, sure. It's sold out in five minutes, right? <laughs> I, I think that's got, that's that's the tactic, though. That that's the point. They've got no. I don't. Craft have got no intention of rolling out this product as a, as a viable product. It's it's pure theatre and entertainment, and it's it's a way of uh, brands just demonstrating a little bit of personality. But you're you're right, Terry. It's it's very much it's all calibrated to deliver a fame moment for the brand um, in terms of earned media, in terms of in terms of social shares. Um, it, they're, they're like the fireworks, really, these stunts in between the, the content strategy that they're doing on a day-in, day-out basis. But, yeah, I mean, we've looked, we're guilty as well. We launched a flat pack pub, uh, an Ikea-style flat pack bar during lockdown for a comedy channel. Um, the first time anybody could do that because you couldn't go out to the pub and get a drink. So we created this, and it was heavily branded. We only made 10 of them. Um, we only retailed 10 of them, um, and we gave a few away for competition prizes. But that was enough to get a huge amount of earned media coverage and shares this side of the pond. And it was more about the idea and the personality and entering a conversation than it was about this being a viable product. I think people just enjoyed the, the fun of it all. That's absolutely what it is. It's that there, there is um, a, a focus on the idea and a very small amount of whatever it is, including that um, Airbnb Volvic stunt mm-hmm. where they put down that beautiful little glass mini house in the middle of the Alps and someone gets to stay there. Yeah. One person gets to stay there for one <laughs> night. Oh, okay. Two, two people. Two people at most can stay there for one night. So it's it's not like you and I can go vacation in this spot. It's it's a it's a very um, very very small um, number of people who can actually participate mm-hmm. or, or win, but yet the the effect is so amplified. Mm. Well, that's because everybody can participate in the conversation, and and that's that that's kind of what counts. So this you know this macaroni and cheese ice cream. It's genius because, you know, it's it, for one, it's tapping into, I mean, a lot of these things that you've written about this week, the, the swimsuits, the ice cream, it's all about already entering a conversation that people are already having, i.e. it's summer. So we're talking about swimsuits. We're talking about ice creams. So that's a, they're entering a, a cultural conversation we're already having. Um, but just doing it in a way that's, that's really disruptive and, and super, super shareable. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, ice cream, I, I particularly like the macaroni um, ice cream one. I mean, it, there's been some great ice cream stunts in the past. Um, I mean, we have Heston Blumenthal over here, who's the mo- one of the most acclaimed chefs in the world, who launched his restaurant with his snail and porridge ice cream sort of 20 years ago. And what, I don't know whether that was a stunt because it's supposed to taste great and he kept it on the menu for 10 years. So lots of people get to sample it. But it gave people something to write about when he started out. Right. And it, it became a real calling card for him. Uh, and we actually, I was telling you this before we came on out, we created the world's first breast milk ice cream for a company called The Ice Creamists a few years ago now um, called uh, The Baby Gaga, which we launched in London. It had a tiny, tiny bit of uh, breast milk in it, but that was enough to send the story all around the world. So, um, so yeah, I've got a soft spot for that, for that craft one. It reminds me of uh, some of the stuff that we've done. There's something about ice cream that just really pulls marketers in, it seems. It seems like it's something that's easy to produce. Um, and especially during the summer, you're always, I mean, ice cream is sort of this evergreen, um, thing. And especially with national ice cream day coming up, we can kind of expect for a lot of brands to step forward with ice cream that is viable, 
and stuff that is just shouldn't see the light of day, kind of like the Kraft mac and cheese ice cream. Um, the uh, there, but ice cream wasn't the only thing that kind of uh, alarmed my taste buds this week. Because didn't Airheads also enter the chicken sandwich race with a chicken sandwich that would otherwise look tasty if the bun wasn't made of Airheads? So that sends it in a very different direction than what we've seen come out of the chicken sandwich wars, but it allows them to participate in a conversation that they otherwise would have no business being in. So in that way, it's very intelligent because this um, chicken sandwich wars thing is sort of ongoing. It's going on two years now um, in this sort of rough, rough battle. Uh, but again, uh, it's just nasty. Now, it's, I think it's important, and this is just sort of coming from a very um, outside point of view, I think it is important to uh, release those numbers and let people know, um, especially when it comes to food, like we are making a very limited batch of this, specifically in terms of things like the Kraft mac and cheese ice cream. Um, because what that reads to the like the unknowing person is that they're making this huge, they're making a huge amount of something that they know is not going to work, that they know that no one is going to eat, which normally I mean, wouldn't matter. But when you're talking about things like sustainability and we're talking about reduced food waste and that sort of rising in the in terms of our priorities, things like that could raise an alarm. But when you put like a small number to it and say, we sent this to a few people that would care because they knew that they would talk about it and that's what we needed to get done, it does put a different spin on it. Swimsuits, everyone needs a swimsuit. I, I feel on this point. So it's, it's, what I can understand about that one, and you'll have to forgive me because I'm not familiar with the brand, was whether they were inferring that that eating soup would, would give you that sort of swimsuit type body uh, and sort of make it synonymous with that. Because with, there's been some campaigns over here that have got in a whole lot of trouble for uh, for that, that sort of beach body ready type promise. Um, and it seemed to be subtly making that link. Um, but True. maybe I got that wrong. Yeah. Was there, what was the underlying message of that, Terry? Do we remember? Uh, honestly, I think the, the, um, they did research, they talked to their consumers, they said, it's summer and it's hot, do you still eat soup? Uh, and that's, the, the insight came from, it may seem counterintuitive that anybody would order hot soup during the summer and yet 70% of their fans still do. So and that's kind of, that was kind of the, the connection. I don't think there was any uh, reference okay. to, yeah, to uh, Beachbody or... Um, and it, it was very, it was a size inclusive line. Important. So it, yeah. Okay. No, that's my bad, but it, a very well trodden route though. Um, as I think you mentioned earlier in terms of food brands, um, going out with their outfits, I think uh, we, we've got a brand, uh, just eat over here that, um, uh, like a delivery 
type service that we worked with uh we created a whole range of um uh, of what twosies they were called uh, and onesies but essentially outfits that you could eat your uh, takeaway in that were modeled on the different takeaways but they had various pockets to hold all the sauces all that kind of stuff and so on but you know you could get the pepperoni version the sushi version so this kind of this kind of thing's been done quite a lot but um but yeah, I thought it was fun to read. I love a clothing-based one, especially one that is size-inclusive, because that's um, not uh, as common as it should be in, in terms of these. Like, it's very hard to find things that go above a 1XL. You're lucky if you get a 2XL. Um, so it's good when brands, within even within just a stunt that's supposed to sort of be a blip in the pop culture site, guys, still take that time to recognize that their audience is broad and that they can use this opportunity to appeal to all of them rather than a small number. Not so keen on the food ones as Terry knows that I feel like if I ever have an industry villain origin story, it's that someone made like a great Poupon ice cream and I'm just like, I, I can't do it. But it's still, um, if it's implemented well, it makes it effective. So I... My next question, or I guess sort of to wrap this conversation up a little bit, is we talked a lot about what makes a resonant stunt, what makes a memorable uh, marketing stunt doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad, but something that has kept us talking. Do either of you have a favorite stunt? Sure. Or one that you still remember? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the ones we've we've spoken about today have been sort of veered on the on the sort of tactical side in terms of limited edition product releases and what have you, and the kind of thing that you could do in a, in a post-COVID world, I guess. But you know, if you're if you're looking at the sort of zenith of PR stunts, then you have to look at things like the Red Bull uh, Stratos uh, space dive, um, which literally broke the internet. Um, you know, the bigger, the bolder, the more dangerous, the higher the risk. Uh, the bigger the return. And that kind of follows in the footsteps of the things that, um, you know, Houdini was doing or, or Barnum was doing back in the day. They were taking huge risks but then getting huge reward in terms of everybody was talking about what they were doing. And I think that Red Bull stunt, I think, will be a difficult one um, for brands to beat. I don't know a single person that didn't tune in that day. Yeah. That was huge. And to the point where I forgot that it was branded. <laughs> like it was just this incredible thing that was happening. Well, it's, it's an unusual one in the sense that most PR stunts that we're talking about today, in fact, 99% of PR stunts kind of rely on a bit of humor as the sort of, as the sort of bonds that, that sends them uh, super social. Uh, and that that didn't that had you either got the humor on the other side you got the do or die, and uh, it's it's in between one of those. But it has to be provide a spectacle. Whatever you're doing, it has to be something super visual that provides a spectacle and that sort of gives a bit of theater. And and speaking of that, there's something I'm working on right now um, coming up. There's a CBD brand called Charlotte's Web, and they have created a stunt. They they are known for some beautiful outdoor stunts that they've done, like beautiful outdoor advertising. They did a crop circle in the middle of the Midwest um, where they um, basically did a beautiful piece of art. Mm. Uh, so they have, um, and, they, and it's all very, uh, very connected to their trust the earth tagline. So everything they do is visually uh, references that. And, and in many cases, it, it 
digs into the actual outdoors, they have something coming up where they have put vending machines for their product on top of a mountain in Utah so that when the extreme athletes get to the top of the mountain and their their muscles are killing them, they have CBD there to use. That to me, it taps into a couple of things. It's absolutely visual, as you were saying, Peter. It, it's one of those big, beautiful, wow, look at that landscape kind of incredible thing. You should see the uh, effort that they went to to get the machine on top of the mountain which is kind of fascinating to watch. And it's also that tapping into exactly that consumer insight, like at that moment. Um, and like I think the Heinz hot dog campaign recently did the same thing. Everyone, I mean, remember when, when I was a kid and there were that, those last two hot dogs left over and my mom would make us like roll up a piece of bread and it was so sad because there was infuriating no, there. Yeah. There was no bun for the last two hot dogs. And if I, you know, cause I was the littlest kid, I would often get stuck without the, you know, so annoying. So why aren't there 10 hot dog buns and 10 hot dogs? So everyone's been talking about that forever. Yeah. And so what, by tapping into that and actually making it, you know, a petition, it, it was just, it was really spot on. Yeah, love that. I'm, I'm speaking as the ghost of um, our European Bureau uh, Editor-in-Chief, uh, Stephen Lepetak, here. And he very much insisted that I mention the uh, nine-foot Jeff Goldblum statue that appeared uh, in celebration of the 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park. Um, which I remember that the picture of like this, like <laughs> nearly bare chested Jeff Goldblum, like <laughs> leaning um, on the lawn uh, in front of London Towers Bridge. That was truly something. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it worked because again, that's a personality that like, you know, everyone loved. So yeah great work um and it was but it was big and that's the, the route one with with pr stunts is can you can you make it big and and will it look good and that was that was a you're right it worked because it was jeff goldblum and that was a meme that that was kind of like brought to life so it had a lot of humor in it which kind of which without the humor it just wouldn't have worked but you know i think lesser brands have just thought well i know what let's just make something really big uh mm -hmm. that will do the job and it, and it doesn't it, it, there's so much more artistry involved in that in a sort of brand or PR stunt than that. So yeah, I like that one too. It, and there's a lot that could um, be said for the stunts that are a little bit smaller in scale. Yeah. The ones that just manage to like strike a weird nerve mm. and that's enough to get everyone talking. Cause like back in like, I think it was like 1996 when Taco Bell released that press release, it's like, we're going to buy the Liberty Bell and we're going to rename it. And that was all it took yeah. to get, I think the the number was like twenty five million dollars in free publicity because everyone was so outraged at yeah. this chain buying this piece of American history um, seemingly at whim. Of course, they didn't do it, but it was just enough to one get get people talking about Taco Bell's audacity, yeah. and also. Um, getting enough people to go, can they do that? Is that something that anyone can just do? And it was like, it, I think it cost them like $300,000 drop in the bucket for a 
legacy chain like that. And they managed to make a huge splash just by showing that they had kind of a lot of guts. Um, so that I think was interesting. Like I love the big splashy artistic ones, but also the ones that just show that, you know, we have a lot of nerve yeah. are, are pretty cool too. Um, so to wrap, what would you say um, is the best way to get to your heart as a consumer? Um, if you were to tell brands, like if you were to craft a stud that looks like this, this is the thing that would catch me, what would it be? And we can start with you, Terry. Um, I think it needs to, it needs to say something about your brand. It needs to convey, as Peter said, your brand personality and your brand DNA. If it's too much of a stretch, I don't get it. You've lost me. But it needs to, uh, yes, clever is good. Outrageous is good. Something we've never seen before. Even though um, some of these concepts, as Peter has has noted, some of the concepts get recycled. It, it might be a similar idea. We've seen apparel drops before. It's happened a lot. So, but it just depends. I mean, if Popeyes does something that's kind of an homage to to Blue Ivy the fashion line, that stands out. It's not just a piece of apparel. It's a really cool piece of apparel. So um, I think it needs to say something about your brand. It needs to have personality. It needs to really pop in a sea of people trying to get our attention. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I've, I've, it, uh, not a lot to add to that. But clearly, it has to be rooted in a, in, in, a, in a brand narrative that makes sense. But I mean, for me, it has to... It has to make me feel something. So whether it's uh, OMG, LOL, uh, WTF, that's what I want from my PR stunts. <laughs> and, you know, if it ticks one of those boxes, then I'm going to be sharing it. It's going to be popping up on my timeline and, you know, job done. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, the ones that resonate to me, like you said, tell me something about the brand. Tell me something about um, their imagination, because ultimately it's not just a matter of, um, advertising your product, but for those of us that are in the industry, it kind of sets the bar for future creative from you. So if you're showing that you have a creative mind, that's going for me as an editor that looks specifically at creative, that lets me know that I need to look at this brand um, more, uh, that I need to basically train my eye on this particular brand to look at future products um, or future product projects rather. Uh, so that sort of tickles my fancy as an editor and as a consumer, I like community building things. I like things that get all of my friends talking about this one thing that we can sort of join in on this joke. Um, it's ideal for, of course, you as a brand to have as many people talking about it as possible, but it's also great for us as just people who sort of live on the internet to be able to have this sort of point of like, Hey, do you remember when, craft release this gross macaroni and cheese because everyone was talking about it and it just it creates these moments that live forever so for me i'm really excited to see what's to come um in the coming weeks because if this past week has been any indication i think we're probably in for a uh, pretty wild ride uh so yeah i think that does it for um, that conversation. We are going to take a short break, but before we do, um, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. This was so fun and I think very illuminating in terms of 
what we should look for and what um, kind of the mindset that brands and agencies are having when these things are, are happening in front of us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. We are going to take a short break. And we are back. Um, before we go, we did have some Emmy nominations drop this week. So I think it's best for us to just take a brief look at the outstanding commercial category um, of the upcoming award ceremony. Uh, this is my first year paying close attention as an editor. Um, so it's very interesting, especially just coming off of Can to see this sort of short list of nominees versus what kind of took us by storm at Cannes. So I'm going to read off the nominations real quick. So we have AirPods Pro Jump um, from TBWA Media Arts Lab, um, Imperial Woodpecker, and Imperial Woodpecker, um, Alexa's Body with Amazon Alexa. That's Lucky General's um, ad agency's Hungry Man, or I'm sorry, Lucky General's the ad agency Hungry Man is the production company. Better, Mamba Forever from Nike, um, that is Wyden and Kennedy, and Pretty Bird. It already does that. Apple Watch Series 6, uh, so again, Apple and MJZ. You Can't Stop Us, another one from Nike, Wyden and Kennedy, and Pulse as the production agency, and You Love Me, Beats by Dre. And that is translation and, again, Pretty Bird. So reoccurring theme between Apple and Nike, them sort of dominating the category there. Uh, Terry, what are your thoughts on this crop of nominees? Um, I'm not exactly sure uh, what that nomination process is like and the submission process. We are we we know about can we we know how important that is to agencies and how um, active they are and proactive in getting their um, their work recognized. On the Emmys, I'm I'm not really sure if it's that same process. You know, uh, maybe it is. Maybe there are just as many ads that get submitted um, for nominations. I'm I'm just not quite sure. I, I do know that it's a, it's a peer-reviewed or peer-judged um, contest. So yeah. it's going to be people in the commercial wing of the TV Academy. So it could be a mix of um, directors, actors, below-the-line folks, but in that, in that genre. So it's peers voting on peers' work. But I think we're, it's not really surprising that we see those very cinematic ads that have been chosen. And um, the one that stands out to me is, is the Beats by Dre, because I had covered that um, when it, right before it broke. And I was just really, really impressed with that piece of work. And I'm glad to see it on this list. Me too. That was definitely um, a resonant and devastating um, narrative that they made work so beautifully, especially when you're touching on um, this ongoing issue of cultural appropriation and systemic racism and um, sort of bringing that to the forefront. And with Beats being sort of the premier line of electronics when it comes to headphones, I thought it was really great for them to fashion such a huge platform 
um, to talk about that. Maybe not so surprising considering that it is Beats by Dre, but it's still great to have those in those issues synthesized in one very neat bit of creative from the perspectives of people who live it. So it was really great to see that on there. Um, I am a sucker for style as well. So it's maybe not surprising that I really liked Jump by AirPods Pro. Not necessarily, I mean, you kind of expect sort of the same music-led um, creative choreography, um, things of that nature in an AirPods related ad. It's not necessarily anything that stands out, but I do like the creativity um, shown throughout that suite of um, advertisements. So pulling, you know, the pavement like street lines, the, divi- the line dividers and turning them into jump ropes um, while this guy like rocks out in his AirPods. I thought that that was pretty cool. Um, ultimately, I do hope that You Love Me wins. It's hard to determine. It's kind of hard to predict what's going to appease the the Academy because you, like you said it's voted on by your peers, but on by their peers. But it's not like can where you kind of get this rolling, uh, this rolling celebration of ads that you kind of observe all year. Like we kind of saw how the industry responded to womb stories and kind of deduced from there, like, oh, womb stories is going to kill it. It can. And it did, um, a little bit harder with this one because I, it seems like they're going for a little bit of a different feel, like you said, in terms of what they want to honor. And I'm not I'm not sure how much of say ad history is is going to be factored in. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, can is looking at a broader picture, I think, and they they are choosing things that um that are very much of their time. Mm-hmm. So that's both, you know, both pop culture history and ad history. I'm not sure if the Emmys will reflect that, but maybe that's that's what they're saying by choosing something like you love me. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, maybe they do have that. And I, what I feel like was so stand out about that ad, which may or may not come into the consideration for Emmy is that it was so unexpected or so different from what beats had done in the past. Beats mm-hmm. is very, very product focused. Yeah. I mean, of course there's always music and, and it's, it's great visually, but, um, they hadn't they hadn't stepped into this arena before and right. the, the, the timeliness of it the the message um it was new for them it was unexpected it, it will i mean i remember the first time i watched it and i was i was absolutely blown away not only by what i was seeing but by realizing that this this is something they are stepping into a very different kind of maturity for the brand mm-hmm. and, and taking on um, a real message based campaign when that's, that's not exactly what they were known for. Right. So in terms of like, like you said, sort of taking in an evolution of a brand um, or at least a brand that's stepping outside of what we normally see from them, I would hope that that would get that recognition. Um, 
in terms of like predicting a winner, um, again, kind of difficult because we don't necessarily know what they're looking for. I would say that if we were to go by sort of Emmy trends, I would say, I would think that Mamba Forever has a little bit of an edge because there is that posthumous element with like, this is an opportunity to celebrate um, Kobe Bryant once again, and probably one of the few opportunities we can celebrate them in this celebrate him in this capacity. So there's that. Um, and, and then and no, no one does a tribute better than Nike. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing with Nike is that they set such a high bar for themselves in terms of making these grand tributes that work, that are respectful and seem to be crafted out of love. And when you have such a beloved figure like Kobe Bryant um, in LA where, you know, the Emmys are obviously going to be taking place. I wonder how that's going to have an effect on the voting body. If it wins, it's not a disappointment. It is certainly a beautiful, well-crafted ad. Um, But that might have a little bit of an edge over the others in terms of what the Emmys may look for in this moment. Um, But I, I hope that You Love Me makes it out on top ultimately because that message is just so evergreen and um, it's really important for brands to sort of take that stand and inform them that, you know, black culture is not a spectator sport. It's not something to borrow from. It's something to appreciate respectfully. Uh, so yeah, that, that is my hope for that. I, I think Terry's kind of, you're kind of along the same lines. Um, I mean, Nike, does amazing work. There's no doubt about it. We all instantly know a Nike ad when we see it. That says that says a lot. And uh, their tributes, quite obviously, there's a long history there. And just their their work in general in really celebrating athleticism and celebrating personalities. They're so well known for that. And there, there is absolutely nothing politicized about that, which makes it a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Emmy voters have been known to be safe. So. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> that, yeah, that pretty much sums that up. <laughs> so it'll, it'll be interesting to see what comes out on top. And um, I'm sure we will discuss it in some capacity, um, either in editorial or on the podcast when we do finally have that winner. Um, but in terms of this crop of nominees, I mean, I think we at Adweek can at the very least extend a congratulations to all of the agencies who, you know, continuously work hard to provide, um, beautiful and memorable creative. And I mean, I can't think of a better bunch of worthy agencies than the ones that are, honored here. So congratulations to all on that. Best of luck to everybody on that one. And I guess we will see everyone on the other side of that. Um, so I think that that does it for us. Uh, Terry, thank you so, so much for joining us here today. And I look forward to more work from you, but I'm also 
low-key scared. So, because you, like I said, you get some pretty oddball ones. But in any case, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And welcome again to your new gig, which is in addition to all your other gigs at Adweek. (laughs) But I love it. Thank you so, so much. Um, we will definitely be chatting soon, um, I can imagine. So, yeah, this was really great. Thank you so, so much. Um, our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Nick Gardner and edited by Lane McGivney. If you haven't already, please, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach us at any time at podcast at adweek.com. That is podcast at adweek.com. I'm Shannon Miller. Thank you for joining us. We will chat next week. Bye.